Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Mr. Kerr Giles. Mr. Giles is a senior consulting fellow at Chatham House. He was in the past associated with the UK's Defense Academy and has reported on Russia and Central Asia for the BBC. Today we are speaking about his book, Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West, published in the United States by Brookings Institution and in the UK by Chatham House. Welcome, Mr. Giles. Thank you. Hello. Uh, What would you say is the thesis of your book? It is more or less exactly as it says on the cover. It's an examination of why Russia is driven to confront the West, not only in recent times but throughout history. It really uh, came about as a result of people like myself in the UK being asked the same policy questions about Russia over and over again, over years and in fact decades, always giving the same answers because some of the answers about Russia are perpetual and don't depend on changing circumstances. Uh, But then those answers generally not feeding into policy and as a result, critically, Western countries repeating the same mistakes when dealing with Russia over and over again and uh, as a result of that, this cycle that we've seen in the relationship between Russia and the West where we go from crisis to crisis. There are resets, there there are returns to business as usual, but eventually some fundamental contradiction between the two sides comes up again and there's a crisis as a result. Now it's, it's that situation which the book is trying to assist with. Can you explicate for the audience uh what uh, the geographer who you cite in the book, Natalia Zubarovic, uh, terms the four Russias? Certainly, yes. This is um, part of the problem of dealing with Russia as a single homogenous entity and saying Russia does this, Russia does that, whereas in fact uh, Russia, like many countries and more than some, is an incredibly complex entity. And within the Russian population, to say nothing of the relationship between the population and the state, there are very distinctive sets of individuals who have very distinctive views on Russia and on the world that come about as a result of their upbringing, their age, their geographical situation, their income, and so on, each of which predisposes how exactly they are going to be seeing the outside world. Now, Natalia Zuberevich's Four Russias is an attempt to break down and categorize these different sectors of the population with these very different outlooks. Broadly speaking, she's looking at the, uh, the modern 
urban, well-connected Russians, the ones who may be cosmopolitan, who may travel abroad. She's looking at the Russia's industrial basis. She's looking at older populations. The fourth Russia is, in fact, the southern republics with a high contingent of, uh, of Islamic populations, which, again, have a radically different outlook on the world. So it's just a lesson to us that we should not be too categorical and too sweeping when deciding exactly what we think Russia as a whole thinks or does. What do you mean exactly when you say, quote, the issue of respect is a recurring obstacle to Russia's reaching mutual understanding with the West, unquote? This is one of the problems that's presented by words that apparently are the same in Russian and English and have direct translations actually having very, very different implications. Respect isn't the only example. There are other words like uh, equality and phrases like indivisibility of security, which come up time and again in the conversations between Russia and the West, but mask the fact that each side understands something fundamentally different by those terms. Now, the problem with respect in this uh, this idea of how you should treat countries and how you should uh, regard countries and what you, what you understand them to be like is that when you consider a country like the United States or the United Kingdom, whether it is respected, you tend to judge it by very different criteria to those which Russia has in mind when it asks for respect from the West. So Westerners might, for example, respect a country because of its cultural achievements, because of its human rights record, because of its, uh, because of its achievements in, in all sorts of different domains. Russia, on the other hand, tends to equate respect with fear of brute military strength and the capability of doing damage. And that, again, leads to these fundamental divisions between Russia and the West on exactly what conversations are about when you're discussing how international relations should work. What exactly is the prism by which, quote, state power is viewed by the current Russian leadership, unquote? Precisely the same as it has been throughout history. Now, if you look at recent developments within Russia itself and the violent suppression of pro-democracy protests within Moscow, it is, in fact, Russia returning to its normal default behaviors throughout history. And when I say history, not just post-Cold War history, not just the Soviet Union, but actually going back through centuries. There are a couple of uh, factors at play here which are very different from Western understandings of the relationship between a state and its citizens. In Russia, you're not a citizen, you're a subject. You are not the, uh, the, the object of the state is not to further your well-being and to empower you. In fact, you owe the state your allegiance and your service. And furthermore, there is confusion at the top levels of leadership of the state between running the country and owning the country in exactly the same way as there has been throughout history. So the whole presumption of relationships between individuals, organizations, the country as a whole and its leadership is on an entirely different basis to the one that we take for granted in Western liberal democracies. Why does Russia, in your words, quote, retain the 1914 understanding of itself as a great power, unquote? Russia makes a lot of great power status of being respected as a great power. And when you unpack that definition, what you find is that Russia's ideas of relations between large countries and smaller ones is something that really vanished from Europe uh, in about a century ago. So the understanding of how larger countries uh, have greater rights to sovereignty than those around them is something which really is a post-imperial mindset that many other countries have turned their back on. 
The problem is that Russia, instead of developing along the same path as, as European states during the 20th century, instead was frozen in the Soviet Union and those attitudes emerged from the deep freeze completely unchanged in 1991 when the Soviet Union ended to the great surprise of the rest of Europe that eventually realized that Russia was thinking about international relations again in a very different way. You appear to state that uh, NATO's expansion in the 1990s into the former uh, Soviet bloc uh, did not cause uh, Russia's alienation from the West. Why do you think that is when so many commentators, even Russian experts, uh, seem to uh, indicate that there was a correlation between the two? Correlation, as we all know, is not causation. Yes, certainly there was an alienation of the West which was built on Russia's resentment of what happened with NATO expansion, enlargement, excuse me. But the point is that this was not a primary cause of Russian attitudes towards the West being what they are today. Because if you look at the pattern of behavior of Russia before NATO enlargement was even considered, you see precisely the same uh, problems in relations with the West, precisely the same attitudes of Russia's neighbors before the excuse of NATO being anywhere nearby. Now, of course, there are other deeper factors which cause this resentment within Russia, one of them, of course, being the belief that NATO made a promise or at least some form of undertaking at the end of the Cold War that it would not accept new members in Eastern Europe. There's a long and complicated history to determining whether or not any such promise was actually made, uh, but the bottom line is Russia believes fervently and repeats at every opportunity that that promise was made. NATO can find no trace of that ever happening. Again, it's one of the causes of fundamental disagreements between the two sides based on an entirely different understanding of history and international relations. Why, in your opinion, was the Obama administration's reset in Russo-American relations a mistake? We shouldn't treat that particular reset in isolation. I referred a, a few minutes ago to the cycle uh, of repeated resets in the post-Cold War periods. There have always been attempts to get the relationship on a better footing, but they tend to paper over the cracks in the relationship to ignore these fundamental differences of geostrategic priorities between Russia and the West and the even deeper differences of understanding of how the world works. Now, without addressing those, there is no point in pretending that relations are going to be all right. It is like a, a marriage in which you do not discuss the basic issues that are tearing people apart and instead try to soldier on. The result is, is predictable because it's happened every time. There are deeper and more serious crises each time these contradictions come to a head. Uh, how much do you adhere to the continuity of Russian history school and especially as it relates to uh, Russian foreign policy. It's true that there are echoes of previous Russian policies and approaches uh, that we see dating back again, not through Soviet time, but through, uh, through the Tsarist period as well. Russia does, in fact, respond to challenges, whether they're external or internal, in very predictable ways, despite changing circumstances in the world and in the country itself. And it's for that reason that we talk about Russia now returning 
to the way Russia has historically dealt with problems, as opposed to this being any kind of innovation. Even the, the period of the Soviet Union didn't constitute any major departure from Russia's attitude towards its own people and its neighbors. You see the same pattern of behavior, both domestically and abroad, replicated from Tsarist times through communism and now into the 21st century. So you don't uh, view 1917 as being a uh, complete break in that respect? It was a complete break in many respects, but as to whether it actually changed Moscow's attitudes to, um, to how the world works and to its relations with its neighbors, countries further abroad, and its own population, no. It, all it did was change the uniforms. But isn't there also an issue of um, discontinuity after 1917? In terms, or, or perhaps you could say 1914, in terms of the personnel. I'm thinking in particular of people like uh, Graf Nesselrod, non-Russian speaker, born in Portugal, um, and of course, um, probably this made for a little awkwardness during the Crimean War, was uh, an Anglican in, in his religious beliefs. Um, obviously, such an individual would um, most likely be in Siberia after 1917 for any number of those reasons just cited, whereas in the Tsarist period, he was uh, for upwards of 40 years uh, foreign minister. Do you mean in Russia's approach to, to foreigners? Or no, do you I, mean I, think, I think in general, the fact that you had a in the ruling elite, a good percentage of individuals who were outside of the country, or I'm sorry, outside of the empire, um, who were part of that elite, made for a different uh, view of uh, how they approached the West, because to some extent, of course, someone like Nassel Rod was a Westerner. He was not uh, by birth or by upbringing an imperial Russian subject. There are a number of different trends there which, uh, again, with exceptions, do point to the continuity. First of all, whether people end up in Siberia. Well, uh, the communists did not invent exiling uh, people to Siberia for, um, for, uh, for holding views or expressing opinions that were not in favor with, uh, with the current leadership. Again, they were tapping into a much deeper Russian tradition where independent thought tends to get you imprisoned. But also the interaction with, with the outside world and with, uh, with um, ideas from overseas. Uh, Russia has always gone through spasms of either welcoming and bringing in foreign thought or closing itself off to it altogether when it decides that actually it is extremely dangerous that its population should be exposed to ideas and opinions from, come from outside. So, in fact, in that, uh, in that situation, the current Russian efforts to cut itself off in, times of, in time of crisis from the Internet to block Internet access altogether is completely consistent with information security policy from previous centuries because this is a country that from time to time has completely banned the import or possession of foreign books because they contain those dangerous ideas and opinions. So, again, you can point to exceptions throughout all of this, but the broad trend is one of continuity. Why is the policy of giving Russia a sphere of influence in uh, Eastern Europe and or in Central Asia a wrong one from your perspective? 
There's a fundamental contradiction here, again, between Russia's view of how the world works and what the, what the West considers to be normal or even acceptable. And this is one of the problems that goes right to the root of the, the problem that you alluded to earlier, NATO membership for states which are neighboring Russia or in the former Russian sphere of influence. Russia considers that it has greater rights to sovereignty than other countries and therefore other countries' security interests should be constrained in order that, uh, that Russia's are sacrosanct. Now that runs directly counter to the Western view that small countries are independent and sovereign and should be entitled to make their own foreign and security policy choices up to and including joining allowance, alliances that will protect them from Russia. Now, that's a basic contradiction between the two sides, which it doesn't appear possible to resolve. What, in your opinion, is the mainspring of Russian foreign policy? What could be termed the primat de Außenpolitik, or primacy of foreign policy, or primat de Innenpolitik, primacy of domestic policy as a determinant of foreign policy? I don't think I would like to sum that up in a short answer, having written a, a book of a couple of hundred pages on it. Unfortunately, there are so many different strands to those questions, all of which are so counterintuitive when you look at it from a Western liberal democratic point of view, uh, that I really don't think you can, you can sum it up in a single principle. Instead, you need to look at the totality of Russian approaches to the world and frame it within the history of those approaches being consistent in, in a changing world. How have the so-called color revolutions impacted on the Putin regime and its foreign policy? The color revolutions have tended to confirm Russia's worst suspicions about the nature of the world and the nature of the United States in particular. Because if you apply the, the Russian prism of understanding of how the world works and what the United States is about, then there are self-confirming prophecies about uh, the United States seeking to recklessly spread democracy throughout the world, to spread, in fact, destabilization and subversion to, uh, to challenge stable regimes, bring them down if they are not in favor in the United States. And the assumption, of course, being that the eventual target of this program that's been demonstrated throughout the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia, is in fact Moscow. So if you start off with the viewpoint that uh, color revolutions are all part of a cunning master plan, which is directed by the United States, then it's perfectly possible to, to find confirmation bias at work and see every incident that follows as just an indication that you're right in the first place and the United States does have hostile intent towards Russia. And therefore, the protests within Russia themsel itself must in fact have been inspired or possibly directed by the United States. Why, in your opinion, uh, was the Western intervention in Libya turning point in Russian for recent Russian foreign policy? There are a number of different factors there. First of all, uh, the, the Libya intervention was the, the latest in a series which was creating this impression in Russia that, yes, there was a, a definite plan of subversion of destabilization being carried out by the United States. And it was one which Russia had the opportunity to prevent using its veto in the United Nations, an opportunity which it did not take 
Now, this coincided with a period when Russia was putting a great deal of money and effort into modernizing its armed forces so that it would, in fact, by the time of Crimea, be in a position to not just object to what it saw as Western plots, but actually to oppose them as well. So you had different circumstances coming together where the Russian foreign policy conclusion appears to have been, first, enough is enough, we need to stand up to this. Second, we actually have the military capability now to do so. So the response to events in Ukraine in late 2013, early 2014, was very different, and it actually precipitated a military intervention as we saw in Crimea. How does the West and Russia differ on the subject of the ending of the Cold War? There is a view in Russia that the end of the Cold War was a, a voluntary withdrawal by Russia from Eastern Europe and, in fact, a, a voluntary approach by Russia to ending the Cold War as a whole. Now, that, of course, is an extremely different uh, standpoint from those who were there at the time and saw what was happening, where it appeared to be a retreat that was not, in fact, under control by Russia. But in addition, you have a, a long-standing uh, idea within Russia that the actions following the end of the Cold War throughout the early 1990s were the West behaving as a victor who would despoil Russia, who would humiliate it, who would grind it into the dust and exploit it at every opportunity, which of course is very far from the truth. Anybody that was there at the time knows the vast amounts of aid economic, humanitarian, food aid, knowledge assistance that were being poured into Russia in an attempt to assist it and bring it into the Western community of nations. Now, that history, of course, has been swept under the carpet in Russia as effectively as has the history of Lendlis during the Second World War because it doesn't fit with the image that the current leadership is trying to portray. In your discussion of Tsarist Russia, you seem to uh, fail to note that after Peter the Great, Westernization and modernization were part and parcel of the regime's uh, raison d'etre. Why is that? Again, that's part of a trend, but it's not the totality of the trend. Westernization and modernization have proceeded in fits and spurts in Russia, but always they have been countered by a, a backlash, by a response that, uh, that when Russia is has gone through a spasm of westernization or modernization, actually the consequences of that become clear and Russia retrenches. It reverses reforms. It retreats back into itself. And you see this pattern repeated again and again throughout history. So yes, there are the great leaps forward. There are, even through communist times, you see the five-year plans, which again are these enormous... Uh, apoplectic fits of modernization, but then afterwards there is the inevitable consequences. How sincere is the Putin regime in its opposition to what uh, Putin refers to as, decadent, as the decadent West, remembering, of course, uh, Lenin's uh, statement that there is no such thing as a sincerometer? I think it's reasonable to assume that some of the views that are expressed by Putin and by other Russian senior figures about the post-liberal world and about Russia standing as a defender of traditional values may in fact be sincerely held. After all, let's not forget that they are an attractive point of view for populations across the world, not just in those countries that Russia is seeking to woo uh, with this approach, with this pseudo-ideology, 
but also in, in traditional liberal democracies like in Western Europe and the United States. People who voted for Brexit, people who voted for Trump, will find they have a lot in common with the view of the world that's being put forward in this, in this new old Russian ideology. I think there is no reason to suspect that however much we see this, this idea being leveraged and used for political purposes by Russia, that it may not actually have some basis in sincere belief. You seem to indicate that real socioeconomic and political change in Russia will only occur far into the 21st century when the generation of uh, people who were born in the 21st century will come to maturity. Why is that the case? I think there are two very different things there. I would not say that socio real socioeconomic change will be that far postponed. After we, we've seen enormous changes, not just in the, in the, the last few years, uh, but throughout the whole period going back to the Cold War. Now, political change is an entirely different matter. A lot of the people who were hoping that political change would come with the, the change of generations as people with memories of the Soviet Union faded away from political life will be disappointed because those generations that succeed them also have a Russian outlook on life, which is not necessarily going to be the same as a Western liberal democratic view. But what is very different about the youngest generation at the moment, and we see this borne out in the streets of Moscow as in the present days, is that their attitude to political protest and the tools that they can bring to enable that protest are very different. They appear to be not aware or not caring at the, uh, the prospect of political repression. They have lost that fear of speaking out that was a constant feature of Russian life, again, not just through the Soviet period, but throughout Tsarist times as well. And they have the tools for organization. They can use the Internet. They can use software. They can use crowdsourcing to actually bring about real political change, as we've seen in the previous results of municipal elections in Moscow and elsewhere. Put those two factors together, and you have a generation which is unique in previous Russian history, and I think that might well sow the seeds of real political change eventually. Does the West need to employ a new version of the containment policy vis-à-vis -vis Russia? Containment is a very loaded word when you talk to Russia. It's, uh, it carries a lot of historical baggage. If you reduce it to its literal term, then yes, it, there is a vital interest in the, for the West in reducing the amount of damage that Russia can do in prosecuting what it sees as its interests, which tend to be in direct conflict with the interests of those countries that are around it and the ones it sees as major adversaries, such as the United States. Now, to the extent that you can call that containment, as in trying to mitigate the potential damage, then yes, containment is vital. But we do need to remember that this has a very loaded meaning when you take, translate it into Russian or if you put it into historical context. How does the de facto Sino-Russian alliance factor into your analysis? I don't think I would ever call it a de facto alliance. I know that there are people who suggest that this is happening, but I think the situation is far more complex than that. Um, it seems more like Russia trying to keep China at bay for as long as possible because deep down Russia knows that it is in fact China that poses the long-term real threat to Russian statehood and territorial integrity, not the West. Uh, how do you envision Russia's relations with the West, ten, say, 10 years from now? I'm not making any predictions at all about 10 years from now, other than that at some point during that period, the cycle that we have seen again and again will in fact repeat. 
Now, that cycle consists of a reset, followed by disappointment, followed by crisis, followed by reset. The phase we are in at the moment is Western countries approaching the reset phase. We are approaching, once again, the period where there will be some attempt at reestablishing relations, at returning to business as usual, at accepting new realities in Europe in an attempt to stabilize the relationship. However, there's no reason to suspect that it will be any more successful than it has on any of the previous occasions since the end of the Cold War. So at some point following that, there will be another deeper and more serious crisis to come. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? It is precisely that. It is exactly what we were just talking about, uh, recognizing that the interests of the two sides are fundamentally incompatible. And so what's necessary for a stable relationship is not pretending that we can be best friends without addressing them, but instead recognizing that the interests will not coincide. And therefore, the best thing to do is manage those contradictions instead of pretending that they do not exist. That was the basis for a relatively stable relationship during the latter part of the Cold War. What we would hope to achieve is something like that stability, but without going through the massive upheaval and conflict and 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 the amount of trauma that the West Russia, or rather the Soviet Union and the West, had to go through in order to establish the parameters and boundaries of behavior and arrive at that stable situation. So in essence, uh, for the most part, you'd, at least in terms of uh, Russia's relations with the West, you do more or less adhere to the continuity school. Absolutely. It's clear if you look at the evidence that uh, Russia is behaving according to long-standing rather than new uh, principles of how it should comport itself, both with regard to foreign countries and with regard to its own population. There are so many echoes of previous behaviors, whether it's Soviet or Tsarist, that it's absolutely undeniable. But you wouldn't then acknowledge the fact that in the Tsarist period, particularly after uh, Peter the Great, there was a Russian elite, or um, particularly a decision-making um, elite, or governing elite, which was highly integrated to uh, the, the West and uh, contacts vis-a-vis their counterparts in, in the West, or if you like, uh, Western Europe and Central Europe. I think the extent to which Russia is isolated at the very top levels of its leadership and its elites is in danger of being overstated. Certainly the central core of Russia's leadership, the people who are surrounding President Putin, do appear to be in far less, uh, far less aware of what is happening in the rest of the world. But then the outer circles, of course, remain integrated in the same way as they were during Tsarist Russia. You have people who come to Europe to visit their money and to visit their children in British boarding schools and spend as much time out of the country as they do. And it's precisely in the same way as you had in previous centuries. The anomaly in that case probably is the Soviet period when there was far more rigid control over a much greater span of the Russian bureaucracy than there was at the moment. But again, we see attempts in today's Russia to reinstate that kind of control. Just over the last couple of weeks, the new restrictions that have been uh, imposed on scientists uh, not being allowed to meet foreigners, or if you do meet them, giving the authorities five days warning and never meeting them alone, is reminiscent of the worst kind of restrictions from Soviet times. Again, it is continuity rather than innovation. 
And one last question. How do you um, evaluate um, the current um, political um, unrest, if you like to characterize it in that fashion, that you see in uh, Moscow in particular in the last uh, couple of weeks? I think it's a confluence of two factors that we've already talked about. It is the the youngest generation that does not immediately associate political activism with repression and potential state murder, plus Russia itself, the leadership, seeing political activism as a threat in a way that it does not see, for example, protests over uh, local issues as a threat. So it's returning again to the default Russian mechanisms of controlling it, which is heavy-handed repression. We have not as yet, mercifully, seen the deployment of the full capabilities of Rosguardia, the National Guard, which is a paramilitary organization which has heavy equipment and is, is prepared for inflicting mass casualties. What we have to hope is that these trends do not continue down the path to where it's actually called upon to use those casualties because that would signal a return to the, the darkest days of Russian and Soviet history. With that being said, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Giles, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You're most welcome. This is uh, Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Giles. Thank you.